Let's imagine the not-too-distant future. You feel more in control of your photos than you ever have before. You look forward to the regular creative dates on your calendar. You're moving forward on that project that means so much to you. You are on fire with inspiration, and you are finally scrapbooking consistently. This is not a hypothetical, it's a real-life possibility. And for the first time, I've created a workshop specifically focused on the problem of consistency. It's called Sparked, and I'm excited to share it with you for free. Visit simplescrapper.com sparked to get access to the training and make this possibility your reality. You know, we did all of those things. Was it enough? You know, yes and no. We would have had a much more difficult time if we hadn't done all the work we did. But I also don't think it's possible to be fully prepared just because there's always going to be more to learn. You learn one fact and you can prove it and you're confident. Um, All of a sudden, there's three more questions that come up because of that. Welcome to Scrapbook Your Way, the show that explores the breadth of ways to be a memory keeper today. I'm your host, Jennifer Wilson owner of Simple Scrapper and author of The New Rules of Scrapbooking. This is episode 76. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation with my husband about a surprise trip of a lifetime that included cemeteries, government archives, and incredibly generous strangers. Hey, Steve, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, and I'm always happy to talk to you. Could you share with our audience a little bit about you and what makes you special to me? So uh, I'm a groundwater hydrologist. I run a program uh, at the University of Illinois uh, to help private well owners and also to um, help small rural communities with their water and wastewater issues, which um, is your other life as well. And um, we have a daughter. I have two grown children. Um. Yeah, I grew up and was raised 80 miles from here, so I've been an Illinois boy my entire life. I grew up on a small farm, and um, yeah, I like what I do. And uh, we've been married for 12 years, going about to, yeah, that's that's a quick recap. (laughs) It is. Well, I think your upbringing and background, and also your your personal and professional passions will all kind of lead into... The things that we talked about on episode 29 when you were on before, as well as this episode, you know, you have such a a strong value for, for family and for stories and memories. And I think that's one of the reasons why it works so well that I'm a scrapbooker and uh, you take probably even twice as many pictures that I do, but you definitely appreciate having those and, and having all the stories attached to them. Yeah, I certainly love to take pictures. So one of the things we always talk about on the podcast is what is one thing that's exciting you right now? Um, Well, I'm certainly related to scrapbooking. Um, So where I work is the Illinois State Water Survey. I've been there for a long time. And um, I recently got permission to start uh, archiving some of our old information. And we're starting with old pictures and slides. And uh, we found this. Uh, if you will, a treasure trove of old glass plate slides uh, that were used as far back as the early 1900s from our scientists. Um, There's nearly 2,000 of them. Some of them are broke. 
they're, I mean, they're really glass. They're like a three by four piece of glass. Some are negative, some are positives, but there's some really cool old pictures. Um, and it talks, goes back to our history of helping people, public health. And so I've been, uh, because we're now working from home, I brought a lot of that home with me and I've got a really nice scanner here and I've started scanning, trying to organize this and create a database for it and understand how to do all that uh, has been a learning process. Um, I've got two people working for me as hourlies uh, on this as well. And so it's slow going, but in the end, we hope to build an archive of images that will allow all our scientists even today to put in their digital pictures and tag them with the appropriate tags so that if uh, anybody wants to use a slide, say related, I'm a groundwater guy, so a, a well drilling rig or a, somebody collecting a water sample, they should be able to look through the tags and find uh, the appropriate tag name and see every picture anybody's ever taken uh, going back 100 years uh, related to that particular topic. So I'm giving myself a year, a year and a half to get this done because it's kind of a spare time thing. But uh, it's, it's you know, you just, as soon as you start scanning a few of these old glass plates, uh, it drags you in because they're really cool. And, that, you know, it'll, some of them have text on it, tell you what it is. Like it's a little town that's near here that it's the well they drilled in 1917. Or when the U of I put in a lot of their wells uh, back in the 20s, um, they took a lot of pictures of that and just to watch how those guys had to rivet every 10-foot section of steel pipe. It's a 24-inch steel pipe. And the work that went into putting a well in uh, 100 years ago versus how much easier it is today. And, yeah, it's just really neat. It's been so fascinating to see you learn how to use the Silverfast software and, you know, the advanced features for digital retouching. You know, I've used Photoshop for a long time, and I certainly do a little bit of that, but not not like what you're doing. And it's just been interesting to talk about, you know, photo editing philosophy. And, and I hope that you'll be able to maybe sometime give a tutorial to some of our members, because I know we always have questions about how do you not only like how do you scan and what are the right settings for getting a good scan that's accurate, but then how do you do like the dust correction and all those things to, to make your scan you know, look as polished as it can without changing the image. Yeah, and I think that really comes down to what you said, philosophy. Because um, there's some people who would say, well, you're dealing with these old glass plates. If they've got a scratch in them or if they've got this in them, it should stay. And you know, it's preserving history. But, um, and you know, if you really, if, if everyone really wanted to do that, I would still do two, to be honest. Because I would do one that's the original scan um, so that you have this preserved image, but a lot of times those aren't even usable. And our goal or my goal is to create a set of images that we can use in the future to highlight, you know, the longevity of the state water survey where I work and the fact that we've been involved in public health for over 120 years. Uh, actually, this year's our 125th anniversary, and we had planned to go all over the state and give presentations um, and now that's not going to happen because of uh, we're all working from home. But um, the fact that um, I am touching them up where there's uh, I'm not color correcting. I mean, they're all black and white. Right. Um, but I am getting rid of uh, dust and, and where you can uh, scratches or things like that where it makes the image look better. And I 
that that's the purpose that we're doing this for. No one else is going to do it either. I mean, it's just now or never. Some of them are broken. Um, they're getting ready to change the amount of space we have. And and those things, you know, they've lasted some of them over 100 years. Uh, they're not going to last another 100. It's just uh, there's not enough interest, which is really uh, sad in my book. And so me and I actually hired a guy who's retired from the water survey who also understands the value of the things we've done there, who's helping with us a lot. Well, it's certainly a cool project and it's been fun to, you know, help you on this with some of the the organization aspects. We've talked about Lightroom and Bridge and, and what's the the best, you know, long term solution and it's obviously it's it's ongoing. Uh, but switching gears here, um, one of the other things we always ask our guests to talk about is your memory keeping bucket list. Now, you're not a scrapbooker in the same way that I am, but you've certainly contributed to my scrapbooks, whether it was, you know, a story that you contributed, you finished the journaling on a, on a book we did about your dog that had passed away. And so we, we've certainly been collaborative. And I'm curious, what is one story that you want to make sure that I include in our family albums? Sure. And I'll say that... Um... I was really hesitant to do the Maggie album, which Maggie was my black lab that got cancer and we had to put her down. Um, but she was so important in my life that after you put all that together and then I was, you know, started writing some of the pieces there, it really was good to do. And uh, it really is a treasured memory for me. So um, I tried to think about this, um, you know, trying to think about where I would go. You know, I want to go to Australia. That's on my bucket list. And hopefully someday we'll get to go there. But that's not really what we're talking about here, I don't think. And what I realized is I was just having a conversation with a guy uh, in Washington, D.C. about um, he's sick of living in town because it's tough for their boys. They've got two boys to go do anything outside. And I started telling him about the way I grew up. And I realized, you know, that's probably what my scrapbooking bucket list needs to be is because I shared some stuff with him, which, you know, he has no concept of the way I grew up. Um, I grew up on a small farm, a 40 acre farmstead, um, about a mile and a half from a small town of um, now 350. It was about 600 when I lived there. And I graduated in a class of 19. It was a farming community. You had to be in every sport. You know, I was on the baseball team, basketball team. I was in swing choir, band, chorus, FFA, because like our baseball team, sometimes we had to wait uh, to leave for a baseball game because all the FFA, which is Future Farmers of America, for those of you that don't know what that is, I was very active in it. We were we had a hog, we had hogs, we had a hog farm. Um, we had, they had to wait for some of us to get back from a judging contest before we could go to our baseball game. And then we were changing from suits to our baseball uniforms in the back of the bus on the way over to another town. Um, but everyone's close. Everyone's active. Um, everyone has each other's back. You know, I was telling this guy I could, uh, when I was 10 or 11 years old, my folks would let me ride a bike into town. It was a mile and a half to play baseball. And our, we had to pick up games in the summer uh, at our our town park, which is the park in the middle of town, but it's, you know, again, a very small town. And they, we had no cell phones. We had, they had no way to contact me. I'd have to go to a neighbor's house and call on a regular phone if I had a problem. But I did that every day all summer for several years, or almost every day. And they knew I'd be back before sundown. And no one worried. No one cared. And, you know, today, um, I would no more let our daughter do that than, uh, yeah. 
Well, yeah, we just upgraded our walkie-talkies for a smartwatch <laughs> so that yeah. we can know where she is at all times and call her at you know any moment. And you know she has to call us if she's changing locations, even if she's on her way home. We have to know she's on her way home. Yeah, no, and it's it is a different world, and it's too bad. But it was a great way to grow up in that respect. And you know, the only place that hurt me, um, honestly, was uh, when I first went to college. You know, people from bigger schools have taken like a lot of the math that I had to take at the U of I um, because we just didn't offer it. We didn't have enough kids who wanted to take it. I know. Um, at the 19 in my class, only maybe five had three years of math and only one other person wanted to take the fourth year, which I needed if I was going to go to engineering. And so, you know, it just wasn't offered. So, um, you know, it put me behind, but it's, I mean, I made it through. So it's not like, uh, it's not insurmountable. And again, it's a great way to grow up. It's just, um, one, it keeps you out of trouble. I mean, if something happened, like we were at a party and we had a, you know, there was a something under a bridge somewhere, and we everyone was beaten there. My parents knew it before Monday, uh, whether I told them or not. So <laughs> uh, it's just the way it was because everybody knew everybody's parents, and uh, so it's just a, you know, there's a lot of cool things about the way I grew up, and I think it gave me better values in a lot of ways, and um, you know, and. I'm certainly not perfect, but it uh, it's a it's a wonderful way way to raise uh, a, your kids. Just because uh, you have to be closer, you know. And we also didn't have any electronics, you know. I I had a Pong, which was a little square console with two dials, and because I'm left-handed, I always would be the second person. And then, so that was our uh, extent of electronics until I was probably a junior in high school. So. Well, I think that outlook definitely influenced your enjoyment of our trip to Sweden earlier this year. And that's really the focus of this particular podcast episode. And I, I don't know that I knew totally what to expect or you totally knew what to expect either. We didn't really even know what like the the landscape would look like. Is it flat? Is it hilly? You know, we tried to look on some Google Maps, but just the... The atmosphere, the friendliness of the people, uh, the wide open spaces, I could tell you felt maybe more in your element there than you do other places when we've traveled. Definitely. I, I loved it there. And also the people, um, you know, it's the way it used to be when I was growing up. Everyone had everybody's back. I said that earlier, but people were just friendly. You know, uh, the day we went with Jan Olaf, which I mentioned his name a bunch today, I'm sure, Um we were trying to find a house out in the middle of the country and there was an elderly woman walking and uh, he thought nothing of just stopping and getting out and talking to her. And if you do that here, <laughs> you know, you're going to scare the heck out of this person probably, or they're going to ask you not to stop or, you know, it's just, uh, it's, it was cordial and people are polite and they want to try to help you. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really cool place in that respect for sure. So the overall like theme here is how do you plan and implement and experience a trip that is both vacation and family history research? So to give further context to our audience, you were actually on episode 29 where we talked about, you know, your journey in genealogy and family history and the way we've like gone back and forth and been super nerdy on New Year's Eve trying to do some research and spending a lot of our time in the evening discovering things. And a lot of that has been focused on my family's uh, ancestry in Sweden. Um, and 
I didn't expect when I was making my plans for 2020. There's a lot of things that I didn't expect to, to happen in 2020, and that includes going to Sweden in, in the first two weeks of March. So, how did this plan come together? Well, and um, let me also say that my mom is 87, and she did know a lot about her her dad's family because he passed away when she was four. So my scrapbooking or scrapbooking, my ancestry journey really started in when I for her 85th birthday, I got her DNA kit and I figured that would really help try to get things started. So I got started there and uh, we did learn some things and move forward. But then um, when you saw what was going on with that, uh, we got you one for Christmas. And, you know, Shalene is a not very common name. And we were hoping it would lead us to some folks who might be able to get tell us more about uh, the people in Sweden that are your dad's ancestors. And so all of that activity really was one piece of our lives, like you mentioned, spending nights, sometimes up till two or three in the morning. But then um, what really happened for this trip, honestly, is you're a huge Beatles fan. And we found out the day he was here, somehow you didn't know. Uh, Ringo Starr was going to be here. I think it was last July, July of 19, and couldn't get any tickets. So um, I know you were bummed about that. And so I decided, um, I realized that you had kind of a big birthday coming up in 2020. And so I started looking online uh, to see if either he or Paul McCartney were playing somewhere. Um, And my honest thought was, we would let Emily spend the weekend with someone, either um, someone in my family or friends or your mom and dad, and we would go wherever uh, he was playing. I'd find a nice place where he's playing on the weekend. I have uh, I, f- I travel some for my job, so I had miles. We could have got our airline tickets for uh, nothing, and I thought we'd just spend the weekend, go to a concert, and that would be the way we could celebrate your birthday. When you were thinking that it would be like... Denver or, you know, Correct. New Hampshire, just like some random yeah. place stateside. <laughs> I was hoping someplace we, you know, we hadn't been before because, um, you know, between us, you used to travel for your job, too. And we've been to a number of places. But, um, yeah, so when I looked, they had no tour dates for 2020. And, you know, they're both older. And I was really concerned that um, they wouldn't have any tour dates in 2020 because I know they don't tour every year. And so then um, the other person you really like to see in concert is Brian Adams. So I got on his website and started looking, and it looked like he was touring out of the country um, the entire spring, this spring and summer. And I was like, well, that sucks because, um, you know, what are we going to do? And then I realized that some of the dates were in Sweden. And, uh, you know, I'd been spending all my time, a lot of my free time, looking at uh, things in Sweden and learning about the Swedish archives and all that stuff. And I was like, Hmm, I wonder if we could do that or not. So I thought about it really for a week or two before I even said anything. I, I finally, I, I called your parents cause I knew they'd have to be involved if we were going to actually do that uh, trip like this. Um, it was going to be longer, probably a couple weeks. And so they would need to come up and stay with Emily because uh, we couldn't just do it over spring break. And it was, you know, the concert was on March 15th. And that was a Sunday night, and so uh, in Malmo, and um, and that's what I'd settled on, and so I tried to plan a trip around that, and and so I just pitched the idea to them, and at first they think they thought they were I was crazy, because um, <laughs> I'm certainly not a person who likes to go out of the country that much, honestly, um, or plan something like this, but then uh, they said sure if, if you set it up, 
um, we will do it. And so, um, and that's how it all started. Um, and so the first thing I did was order the tickets and that was probably in October, maybe, maybe early November after everyone had agreed that we would do this. And I knew the dates were somewhere around the 4th to the 20th of March. And that got us, um, I had, we had to be back for the Illinois section conference on the 21st. This was our limit, um, or the 22nd. And so, um, which ended yeah. up being canceled anyway, but that's, well, sure, that's but be you a don't know that. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. So, uh, I ordered the tickets and, um, then I just started looking around and, uh, at places and, you know, I'd already, I already knew where your family was from. We knew that, you know, your dad's, uh, great grand grandfather came from, uh, Hoganas, which is in Southern Sweden near Malmo. And that your great grand grandmother came from near Stockholm, which is kind of central part of the country, but it's about seven hours in between. And so uh, that's the other reason I figured we'd have to do two weeks, because if we're actually going to go to the archives and try to find out information, one, we don't know if we'll ever be back because it's not like a trip we do very often. Uh, never had we done this. And two, um, we wanted to make sure we had enough time. Uh, we didn't know what we were going to find. And so, uh, and that was all good. And then um, I realized that uh, the last time we went out of the country was in 2008. And we've never updated our passports. And so I got in our lockbox and sure enough, both of our passports were expired. And then I really thought, oh boy, now what am I going to do? Because there's no way to get you a new passport without you either being suspicious or finding out why. Um, and so I, I was really... Uh, at a loss for, not for actually for very long. It was like it was meant to be. But again, um, so I should say something really quickly about Jan Olaf. He is a a distant cousin by marriage of Jennifer's that I met on Ancestry.com because we had some same people in the tree or trees. And I started reaching out to him because he's from Sweden. And it turned out he knew someone we sent a Christmas card to here in the States, Jennifer's cousin. And he sent us this hand-drawn family tree that had Jennifer on it, which totally freaked us out at first. Um, But as I got to know him, he started translating stuff for me, which he was a godsend in that respect. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. I think think some of this we talked about in the last episode, too. Oh, maybe, yeah. Such a a great serendipity to to connect with him. Yeah, no. And so um, just out of the blue, he sends me an email about this show that's on TV in Sweden and it's about these Americans, you know, because there's there was a great migration of Swedes to America in like between uh, 1860 and 1920, I think. Um, but there's a lot written about it because a significant portion of the population of Sweden came to the U.S. because land was free and things like that. So anyway, there's a TV show where you can submit a video and why you want to come to Sweden as an American and search for your ancestry and it had to be submitted by January 30th. And so to me, that was perfect because uh, so I sent Jennifer the link to the show and said, we really ought to do this. We ought to do a video and we really ought to think about being on the show. It'd be awesome. They could probably help us find some of the questions we have and stuff like that. Um, where all along, I had no interest in being on the TV show. Um <laughs> You were I mean, you were very pushy. I remember it was like I ended up setting up all my studio lights late at night one night so we could take our passport photos. And I'm like, gosh, he he really wants to be on this TV show. Like it was just, but I had no suspicions at all. That's awesome because that's that was the hope. 
And so, um, yeah, so we, I ended up saying, you know, it takes a long time to get passports. And, and so I got our passports ordered probably in uh, December sometime or maybe first of January, um, on the guise of doing this video and, uh, Jennifer's birthday's in the middle of January. So I knew once that happened and she was aware of what was going on, um, nothing else would go. And we did not make a video and we did not submit it, uh, which I'm glad for. But yeah, if that I wouldn't happen, we, we should still do well, that. <laughs> well, we wouldn't have been able to go anyway, even if we'd have, you know, been chosen. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure they didn't, didn't the, film a show this year. So yeah, I'm sure they didn't either. And so, cause I think the people were supposed to go over in May, uh, yeah. the way I remember reading it. And so, yeah, we could certainly do that. Uh, but we've learned a lot since then too. So really that was, uh, allowed, me to put them that's the major duck that needed to be put in a row if you will because if we didn't have passports obviously we weren't going so so then uh we got to her birthday you know i was pretty nervous a week or two before because i was like well you know she doesn't really uh leaving emily for two weeks is a big deal and so our daughter and um and so i was like well what if she says no well all i had in it at the time were the tickets and the passports because i'd I couldn't order the airline tickets in advance because she would get a notice from American that I'd got tickets uh, because she has a frequent flyer number two and all that stuff. So I had to wait, but I did watch the airlines and I know March is not a popular time in Sweden because it's still cold. Um, so I, it looked like there'd be plenty of flights and there were, so that wasn't an issue. So Yeah, that all um, seemed to come together pretty quickly. We you know pulled the trigger and I mean, it definitely felt like a, a stretch, but I didn't, I never at any time had any hesitations related to, to going. I was like, well, yeah, of course. I remember that one of the first things I said is, so are we going to like look for cemeteries and stuff? And I know my mom was like, what? <laughs> you are nuts. <laughs> no, and that was, and we, you know, and again, Jan Olaf helped there too, right? Um, I emailed the, one of the cemeteries and, uh, and he helped us find some information for that. But you know, I'll never forget the look on your face, honestly, because I was so worried you were going to say, oh, my God, we can't do this. I'm too busy or whatever. And when you looked at that, because what I gave her as a present were just the tickets to the Brian Adams concert. And it said right on there, Sunday, March 15th, Malmo, Sweden. And uh, the look on your face is you're trying to comprehend and figure <laughs> yeah. out what, what Malmo, Sweden, what's this mean? Because at first you were totally um, not getting that we had to go to Malmo, Sweden to see it. So, um, yeah, it was pretty cool. I definitely had to have a few seconds there to put it all together. Yeah. And like you said, after that, it went really fast. We spent uh, most of our evenings picking out where we wanted to stay. We used Airbnb for almost the whole trip. And we found, you know, yeah, it was uh, booking our flights and, and planning what we were going to do each day. And, um, you know, like we were limited because the archives were only open during the week. And so... Um, you know, some things like that, that got in the way, but we, yeah, it turned out really well, even with the COVID issues. So, so I want to like briefly, as we transition to, to talking a little bit about how the pandemic affected our experience. Um, I, I've joked several times that I feel like I hit my head on my birthday and I'm still in a coma and maybe someday I'm going to wake up because the year has been so bizarre because it all started. We were going to out to dinner. Uh, it was actually the night before my birthday because you had uh, work obligations the next day on my birthday and I was feeling so nervous and I didn't understand why. It was just like the three of us going out for dinner and I was just 
almost shaking nervous. And then we walk into the restaurant and then my parents are there and I'm like, oh my gosh. And I really just, that's the moment I felt like we were in the parking lot. I hit my head and I haven't woken up since because it's just been this total kind of roller coaster since that moment. Yeah. Well, and your parents live a thousand miles away. So that's the last people you expected to see. We went in that restaurant. That's for sure. So then that was all planned, uh, obviously. So when we, um, you know, we left March 4th and we got home on March 17th and, you know, went basically from the airport into, you know, which of course was so nerve wracking to get off this plane and go through, you know, health screening and temperature checks. And uh, we went immediately into two weeks of strict quarantine where we couldn't even hug Emily. Right. Um, and I, I don't want to really dwell on this particular topic so much, but I imagine there's a lot of like curiosity of how, you know, we knew that the virus was a thing when we left and I was like, should we not go? But I wasn't like hundred percent serious. I was just like, should we be worried about this? And I was talking to people and they're like, Oh, my doctor says it's fine. It's no big deal. You know, it'll, you know, it may not even come here. Like it wasn't, it wasn't that big of a deal when we left. And then it turned into a major one by the time we got home. Well, yeah. And we, you know, we planned from the fourth to the 18th and uh, we did have to come back a day early but it, it certainly impacted the last part of our trip. And and I'd say, you know, the first uh, real bummer, if you will, was on, I think it was on Wednesday the 10th. Um, we were sitting in this, we, we rented a cottage for seven days down by Malmo. And on Wednesday was the Wednesday before the Sunday concert. And we got a notice that the concert was canceled and going to be rescheduled for May, which I'm sure that got canceled too. Oh, I think we were, we were sitting in the parking lot at the archives. We had just like finished some research. Oh, sure. And sure. it was like raining that day. And then I'm like, oh gosh. And then I got this, like a text notification. Yeah. And so that was a bummer because, you know, that was kind of the impetus for the trip was to go see Brian Adams. Mm-hmm. And so we've, you know, we were already having a pretty good time though and realized it wouldn't be a big deal. And then the next day, um, which actually two days later for us because they're seven hours ahead. But um, on Friday morning, the 13th, Jennifer woke me up like at five in the morning and said the president just announced last night, which, you know, Thursday night at like 9 p.m., that anyone who's out of the country has to be back today, Friday the 13th, or they may not get back for at least 30 days. So, you know, we're in this little cottage in the middle of uh, outside in a rural area outside of Malmo, Sweden, uh, uh, five hours or better or six hours probably from our airport. And um so I got online or I got on, well, I got online and found the information for the consulate and we had both phones. I had her phone and my phone and I was on hold for almost five hours with both American and our U.S. consulate and never got through to either one. So um, we had borrowed some information from a Swedish uh, family or couple who um, knew more, uh, stuff about her great grandfather, great, great grandfather the day before and we had to return it. And so I was like, you know what? Screw it. We're, you know, face to fact, we're not going back today. We can't get back. Um, Yeah, it just wasn't going to happen. So I said, we need to go return that. They gave us something that's really precious to them. And again, people there are really nice. And then we'll talk more about them, I'm sure, um, when we talk about Pershog. But um, so we went ahead. I said, let's just go ahead and enjoy ourselves. We got a, we got tickets to get us home on Wednesday. you know, we'd learned by the end of that day that uh, what pr- the president had said was um, didn't hold for American citizens, that we could still get back. And so we just um, we'd planned to go to Denmark the next day 
because uh, it's right across the bridge from where we were. And then Friday night, they closed that border, so we couldn't do that. So we just did sightseeing stuff over the weekend. And, um, yeah, we actually went places we probably wouldn't have gone, like the the Ale Stenar thing, which is like a Swedish Stonehenge, if you will. It's a clock that was built in the 5th century out of stones, some kind of Nordic clock. Uh, that, that was a lot of fun. Um, well, I think it was it was the right. It all it all came together in the end. Like I'm glad yeah. that we did those things. It was very uh, restful. It was nice to just limit any exposure to people because by that point it felt more nerve wracking. Like the first week, I was like washing my hands a lot and just you know trying to generally avoid people. But it wasn't. There was no sense of panic. Um, it was just a little nerve wracking and we, we kind of avoided the news. We avoided Facebook for that first week. And then kind of when things were starting to change is when we could no longer avoid all that. And then we're unfortunately very dialed in and in tune with what was going on. And that's when it became a little more stressful. So, but all that driving around really helped ease the tension and just help us enjoy, enjoy our time left in Sweden. Sure. And I'll, you know, I'll be honest. I, I, I don't know why, and I really don't want know why, because I am uh, a worrier, typically, but I was never worried. I figured if we can't get back, I knew Emily was with your parents, and uh, they'd be fine. And if we, the worst thing we had to do was stay in Sweden, um, you know, we have a credit card, so <laughs> we'll deal with it later. Um, but, uh, and it was all good. I, I don't, you know, like I said, I don't think I ever really panicked, but then um, we started driving back up towards Stockholm uh, on Sunday because our flight was going to be Wednesday and we were going to spend the last couple of days up there. And then uh, we were most of the way there and stayed at this uh, one of the other nights we stayed at a hotel. And at 2.30 in the morning, we get a text message from American saying our flights were canceled. And so um, that's not a good thing to wake up to at 2.30 in the morning. But um, so I got online. I got on the phone. I was only on hold on, luckily, like literally five minutes. And then uh, the person from American uh, said, don't worry about it. We did cancel the Wednesday flight, but there's a flight either Tuesday or Thursday. Which one do you want? I said, Tuesday. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> if I picked Thursday, I think Jennifer would have killed me. Because, um, yeah, we were worried about getting back. That was uh, the probably the most tense moment. It was just yeah. panic of, oh, my gosh, we're not going to make it back. We're going to be. Yeah, I don't know. It was just a, such a surreal a it was experience. a very difference, um, but you know, so so we changed our plans. We didn't have, uh, and luckily, at that point, no one was traveling. No foreigners or anything were traveling into the country. So when I got on Airbnb, we needed one more night, a Monday night place to stay. We didn't want to stay in a hotel near the airport because we figured there'd be a lot of people, and we were trying to avoid people by then, because um, everyone was, you know, it was really breaking out all over the place. And so um, we found an Airbnb. It was close. And, you know, we went and uh, we hung out during the day and we went and ordered Thai food, which I went and picked up and brought back. And we just took it easy. And um, it was very much know, a preview of our life since then. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. But we were really lucky in a lot of ways. Like, you know, I had people texting me, uh, my friends and family and stuff saying, Listen, there's people who came back today to through O'Hare, which is where we came back through. They spent seven hours trying to get through the line uh, to get their temperature taken and all that stuff. And and we weren't supposed to land till eight or nine o'clock at night. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, we're not even going to get back. Uh, and then they canceled the flight from O'Hare down to Champaign, where we live. 
Um, but that's happened to me a bunch of times, honestly, uh, in other times. So I always know I can rent a car and then drive down. It's two and a half hours. And that's what we end up doing. But we were really lucky we got to the airport. And I think we were the last flight on that Sunday night. And everybody else had already been through. So there's this army of sanitarians and, and public health uh, e, you know, EMPs and EHPs and, uh, who are there to take our temperature and, and ask us all those questions. And, uh, well, they had only... come from all over. It was so interesting yeah. to see that they were had volunteered from all yeah. over the country to come work uh, at the airports. Yeah, the guy that helped me and took my temperature was from St. Louis, and you know that that alone is five or six hours from Chicago. Yeah. So, but yeah, we we got through all that in forty five minutes, and so um, so we drove home. And it was home such a relief so. to just get in that car and finally be like, "I'm we were safe." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, let's so... let's shift gears and dive into kind of planning for travel that includes family history research, because there's, I mean, there's so many details that we could cover here. Um, but I think maybe it'd be helpful for our audience to first kind of explain the key characters that we'll probably mention again and again. You already mentioned Jan Olaf. Um, so he is on my great grandmother's side by marriage. So we actually don't have any overlap in our DNA. Um, but we have, you know, as, as Steve said, there's, you know, people that I've met in person at family reunions have met him before and they've traveled to Sweden on their own. And so he's very much part of that, that side of the family. Um, and he was just so delightful. It took us around touring, you know, the, uh, I guess the Northwest corner of, of Skuna County, um, this, this region of Sweden and gosh, what is the. Which is where Hoganus is, yeah. which is where the Shillings... Is that whole tip called, like, Trelleborg, or is that just the town on the end? I think that's just one of the towns. But, you know, yeah, it was cool to... Um, once I realized we were going, I actually emailed him and said, hey, we, I'd like to meet you, you know, because he'd been very helpful. And we were reciprocating. He was trying to find information about his grandma, um, who came to the States when his dad was only three. And uh, there was really nothing... There was not much information. And so we spent some time trying to help him... Uh, find out his ancestry and and like Jennifer said he was he was wonderful to us um so that was yeah he's definitely a big part of our trip and why why we enjoyed it so much so I misspoke it is Kulaberg which is the whole peninsula that's super rocky and where the lighthouse okay. was and like sure. so he drove us out there Trelleborg yeah. is actually on the southern coast so Oh, it's yeah. been a couple months go. now. We should have recorded oh, this man. episode right when we got back because we were. Yeah. I was still practicing Swedish. I had great pronunciation. You know, we were. I, <laughs> I knew what I was doing, and now it's we have a little distance between us. Sure. Um. So then, the key kind of family members are uh, the Barg side, and Anna Barg was my great grandma. She came over in 1903 and grew up in the, had grown up in the Stockholm area, um, and. You know, so these are my my dad's grandparents, Anna Barg and Carl Shaleen. And Shaleen is my family name. Um, maybe, Steve, you want to share a little bit more? Well, just um, like Jennifer said, uh, Anna was in the Stockholm area and Carl Shaleen was in the uh, down in Hoganus, which is north of Malmo, but it's in on the southern tip of uh, Sweden. So there's about seven hours between them. And we had learned at Christmas of 18, when we spent a lot of time and our folks were here, um, it was at least news to me uh, that Carl Schelene was actually not born Carl Schelene. He was born Carl Dahlstrom. And, uh, but he lived with Per Schelene. And what we found in the Swedish records was a record when he was six uh, and he was listed as an apprentice baker. 
So for some reason, Carl Dahlstrom moved in with the Shaleen family. Only, you know, what we could think of at the time was that uh, the Shaleens had all daughters. They had two boys that both died within three months of being born. And maybe he was going to step in and take over the family business, if you will. And I know that happened uh, back then. And so, um, you know, they I'd always thought Jennifer was a Shaleen. It turns out, you know, she's not per se. Um, and so, I thought, so that's one of the things that was really interesting. And then when he came to the U.S., which I assume around, I don't remember what date, 1898 or... 1896, I think? Yeah. Um, when he came to the U.S. and also came to Chicago, which is where he met Anna, um, he took the name Carl Shaleen. And so um, he just dropped his name. And what was cool about him is that even though he changed his name to Shaleen, um, because then on the Swedish side, when he still lived in Sweden, it was always Carl Dahlstrom living with the Shalines, basically, um, was that he kept close to his brothers and family, um, his, you know, blood brothers of birth family. And like he was listed as the next of kin for his brother who came over and ended up being drafted in World War One on his draft card, which we have found in the archives uh, in, in on Ancestry, actually. Um, Carl Shaleen's listed as, I can't remember which Dahlstrom brother it was, but, you know, it's, it's just kind of odd. You know, he moved, moved in with his other family, but yet he still stayed close to all of them. Well, and and uh, we have a little bit of a, this is going to be a teaser for something we'll mention later. <laughs> like this was kind of the big puzzle we went over there trying to solve is like, what was the relationship between these two families? You know, we knew they lived in the same town. Like, were they neighbors? Like, can we go find their houses? Like what, like... How, what's right. the connection and what story can we piece together? So, so we have the Shaleen and the Dahlstrom side of the story that's in, in Skuna and then in the, the Hoganus area. And then we have the Barg story, which is in Stockholm where that's where we flew in and out of Stockholm. And so that's kind of where our, our journey began. I want to kind of transition to planning for this type of experience, travel experience. And do you think, we did enough planning. And even if it felt like we didn't, could we have actually done more? You know, um, there's a lot of pieces to this puzzle. And some of them were, you know, just dumb luck, to be honest. And so, um, you know, we had spent so much time trying to learn about your family in Sweden. We'd done a lot of things uh, to prepare without realizing we were even going to go over there. You know, we learned about the Swedish archives um, we started learning what a lot of the words were in Swedish that meant, you know, birth, death, marriage. Um, we learned how to interpret the parish books. So over there, the parishes did the census and they tracked every person who came in or left the parish every year. And so, you know, first, when we started looking at some of that stuff, um, we'd see this number on the side, like it'd be a, it's a P with some other number or some other letter with a number. And that meant it was that they were also listed on another page in that book or in a different parish book on that, uh, whatever page number it was. And so you could, once we figured all that out, then we could track a person from when they moved from Hoganas down to Malmo to, you know, uh, Yastad, wherever they moved from one parish to the next, both parishes had records in their books and it's cumbersome to go through those and find them. But once we learned how to do that, um, that really prepared us uh, so that we didn't do that stuff when we were in Sweden. We we looked at other records. 
And, and I um, think that, you know, I mean, we did some of that. And I would say that we we developed like a, a hearty proficiency, but it was really when we there we were there and we started talking to people at the archives and kind of learning more about some of the nuances that made it much easier to just follow people from place to place. And then once you know how to do that and have that comfort level, it's like, it's like, oh, it's easy here. You can see this, Um, but you have to have the experience and understanding what it all means. Right. Well, Um, and I would say, you know, to answer the question, um, I would say that going to Sweden was not a motivator for most of the preparation we did um, until after January. True. Then we did scramble because we, we wanted to make sure we had, and we'd learn things from other people. And that helped us know, um, just like going to the LDS Heritage Center, um, I didn't even know to do that until January or February because someone told me about it. And it turned out you can get to more information there than you can on your own online. Um, and so there's there's a lot of things we learned along the way that helped us. Um, and I would say um, it really is just solving a puzzle or a mystery. And um, as we went along, some things motivated us to keep doing it. And, and that's why we were as prepared as we were. And, um, you know, like realizing Carl's Dahlstrom and Ada Shalene, we wanted to go find more about that. Um, your family has a rumor that Carl had a daughter in Sweden. Um, we decided it might be Anna Shalene, which was the daughter of one of the Shalene sisters he grew up with. You, you uh, mean Anne Margaret, right? And Margaret. Yeah, yes. I'm sorry. And I did. Yeah, I, I said that wrong. Uh, again, yeah, it's been a little bit. We haven't. And so, you know, a good soap opera like that is one of the things that you're really trying to figure it out. But it can also, if you decide this is a fact for where you have the facts, um, that's one of the lessons here is that, you know, we were wrong. <laughs> so um, well, and we don't we, yeah, we, have, we don't have any evidence that showed that he was ever in a in a place, live with someone else like there, that. I mean, there's, yeah, there's, there's it's nothing. certainly possible. But we don't have any facts that support that at this time. Yeah, and I think the only way we would find that is if uh, at some point uh, you, we get a call or we're looking on Ancestry and someone is a match for DNA that d- doesn't make sense and it's from over there. Correct. And that's how we'd figure that out because that's just like one of the other Shalene daughters. Um, it turns out she has another family. She came over here and started a whole new family, and we didn't know about it until you met one of um the Shalene great-grandchildren who actually lives in the state. So, you know, we did all of those things. And uh, I guess, you know, was it enough? You know, yes and no. Um, We would have had a much more difficult time if we hadn't done all the work we did. But I also don't think it's possible to be fully prepared just because there's always going to be more to learn. You learn one fact and you can prove it and you're confident. Um, All of a sudden, there's three more questions that come up because of that. And now you've got it. Maybe they're smaller questions. They're not the big ones, but you can always learn more. And um, that's it's actually that's what makes it pretty cool. And uh, and sometimes well, one of those you you don't know what you don't know situations. Exactly. And, you know, that's exactly what it is. You, yeah. You discover so. something that kind of doesn't line up with your assumptions, and then you realize maybe you had it all wrong, and you have to kind of re refigure it out and. Um, realize that you did like that something you thought you understood led to your interpretation of the data. And then you're like, Oh, well I totally just didn't get that right. Right. I blew that one. No. And it's just like, you know, the first archive we went to was one of the city archives in Stockholm and the young lady who helped us, she was going on websites that we didn't even realize existed and uh, found, you know, 
some really cool stuff right away for us. And so, you know, you got to be inquisitive and you got to be willing to ask. Um, the same way there's a forum for the Swedish archives. You know, I started posting stuff on there in English and some very uh, helpful, generous genealogists from Sweden, uh, you know, were kind to me. And even though I made some dumb mistakes and and should have been able to figure some of it out on my own, they helped me figure out how to figure out a lot more. And so it's, you know. Well, and you mentioned how, like, the, the person at the archives helping us find records. And some of those databases we had access to from home, we just didn't realize you know, what, what that meant or them. what it was or how could it could how it could help us. And yeah. then there were certainly there were other databases such as the one called the Rotomanen, which is basically the Stockholm city census. So they took a, an internal census every single year. So we were able to see where Anna and her family lived every single year for, you know, fifteen or so years, uh, because of this database that, you know, you can basically only access in Sweden and, and at a few, you know, family history centers here in the US. Well, and that, you know, we spent one evening going to nine different apartments of buildings where the Bargs lived, which was really cool. We have pictures of all of them. Yeah. But you don't, you know, um, there's also things that you, what I would call more precious things that you can't get anywhere but uh, maybe in the paper records. And I would say, you know, this other city archive we went to. Um, to me, that was one of the, you know, make the hair on the back of your neck stand up moments was when you found the letter that your great, great grandmother wrote to the orphanage asking them to take her daughter and take Anna in, um, you know, and it was cause she was a widow and she had three kids and didn't think she could take care of all three of them. So, uh, for whatever reason, she picked Anna to be the one to go to this, it was kind of a cross orphanage boarding school where they teach you, teach the boys to be carpenters and the girls to be maids. And so and I, it's because she wanted her to have a better life and be taught a life skill that she could use when she was grown up. And so, you know, that's what we learned. Uh, and, you know, now you have a picture and a scan, just a picture, I think, of that original handwritten letter, um, which, you know, that's priceless to to us and our family. It is. So. And we just we didn't understand why she went to the orphanage. Um, like we knew that she did, we'd found that record probably over a year ago, but it is, it never really made sense. We kind of mm-hmm. lost track of her. Her whole family came to the U S without her. Without Why was her, she not right. on the boat? Um, right. and it was just, you know, I, I think it, it was, uh, you know, right place, right time that this particular place took children of a certain age. And she was the one that met that criteria and would be able to stay there the longest. She actually was there for nine years. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's so har- hard to wrap your brain around being in that situation where you're going to, you know, have your daughter go live somewhere else. Um, yeah. Well, and you know, it's hard times and I get that. And, you know, Jan Olaf is able to explain some of that to us too, the way things were around the turn of the century in 1900 and, and before. And so, um, well, we learned that, that they would, you know, they would not like they didn't see their family. They'd go home for holidays and, you know, they were, it's not like they were separate from their family. And, and even the example you gave with Carl and, and his Dahlstrom siblings that you don't, you don't cancel blood just because you have physical distance. <laughs> no, but you know, that's still a sad story to me because her family and uh, Anna's family, all her sisters and everybody came to the U S without her. She came over four years later, but her mom died a year after she got here. So she never saw her mom again. Yeah. Um, and you know, 
that it's just there's a lot of that though that's you know there's some heartache and all that and things you find out so yeah but it's it's our lives i mean that's who our family is so it is what it is so we've mentioned um the swedish archives which is uh rick's archivet um which is all like free and open and once you understand how it works it's a wealth of information there's multiple ways to search um, you've mentioned ancestry. Now, in our research, we've kind of sometimes flipped back and forth between ancestry, where we store our data, and family search, just because sometimes they'll sh- you can do the same type of search, at least you think you are, and it shows you slightly different information. So it's kind of been good for cross referencing. Yeah, and there's others too, but uh, family search, you know, I we do have an account there, um, and it is free, and it does have some of the same information. It doesn't have as much as Ancestry in some cases. In other cases, we found things that weren't on Ancestry but are on Family Search, and they're 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 the same. They're owned by the same people. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't make sense. It's kind of frustrating. But the, the real problem with Family Search is that anyone can go in and change a record. And so you could spend a lot of time building a tree in Family Search, and then someone else could come along. It's tied to one giant tree somewhere, and they'll go in and change the information. And you, you know... Uh, the one thing I have learned is that on Ancestry and everywhere else where you look at other people's trees and records, some people don't do their due diligence and they've got a lot of mistakes. And so you can't trust somebody else's tree. You have to do your own research. You have to have your own proof, you know, your own birth records, your own marriage records, all the things you have to go dig and find um, before, you you know, I do before I add anyone to a tree or assume that this is correct because so many people are wrong and they just, they see, you know, Wilson's a common name and they see, uh, you know, um, Archibald Wilson uh, who came, was a son of uh, my ancestors who came over here in the 1700s. And there's a ton of Archibald Wilsons and they have different families with different kids. And you see people who have my dad and part of their lineage uh, and on their tree, but, you go back up, they've got the wrong Archibald. <laughs> it's like, yeah, uh, people just, you know, if you see somebody with more than 10,000 people in their tree, they probably haven't done their due diligence, uh, in my opinion. So, but that's family search. So, oh, sure. Um, well, not, no, you meant that's ancestry. Or ancestry, yeah. Yeah, no, and it's, I mean, that's, that's just an important lesson is that, you know, don't put anything in your tree unless you have a record to support it. Um, even if that if that record maybe is is personal contact, sure you could, you should say that too and create a record that says that. Um, yeah. But you have to have the data to support it, and you can't trust necessarily just that somebody else traced this back seven generations doesn't mean that it's totally accurate. So well, and that's a lot more work because putting sources in mm-hmm. is where is. the. I mean, it's just sometimes it's painstaking, especially when they have eight and, or ten kids. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> right. Well, and for instance, we kept two trees for Jennifer's family for a while. We had a Shalene tree and we had a Dahlstrom tree. And we actually tracked a lot of Dahlstroms, even found a connection to a Dahlstrom uh, a, a rel, a, you know, descendant that's in St. Louis and is friends on Facebook with someone. We're friends on Facebook. But um, now in the end, um, not to spoil it, but we found a connection between the Dahlstroms and Shalene's. And so now we're putting it all back in one tree and every one of those sources has to go be put back in on the other side. And we haven't got it done yet just because it's, it's it, it takes time. Yeah. We have a lot yeah. of notes of to-do list items. Yeah. So yeah, we do. I, so. I do want to briefly talk about archive digital because this is a, a paid service. 
um, that uses, combines, you know, the same data that's in the Swedish archives, but basically has reorganized it for you. It allows you to search by person. Well, it um, also has stuff that for, you know, up through 1985. Yeah. And they, it's, uh, it's been like a lot of the images have been improved. You know, we were talking about scanning earlier, like the, you get really nice, clean images. Um, and we definitely relied on that, but because you, because we weren't subscribers, we were looking at it from these, um, these archive locations. We had to basically take down the page, which book, which page number, and then go find it in the Swedish archive so that we could add it as a record in ancestry. Yeah. Well, and then I had someone help me uh, when I was looking for uh, Belinda is Janola's grandmother. Um, just by chance, uh, a person who taken a picture of her gravestone was a, a, a you know professional genealogist. And when I reached out to her just to ask where she got that picture and blah, blah, and she took it, but she didn't have any other information. She said, you have an LDS church in Champaign. You should be going there because you can get access to Archive Digital and all these other things. And that really was a game changer because, you know, you found Annette, who's a descendant of the Shalines living in San Francisco, only because we were able to go back and uh, use Archive Digital at the LDS Church and uh, look at records through 1985. And we found, you know, she was born before that. So luckily, and so we were able to track her down. And then, you know, I think you found her because you started searching on Facebook. Yeah, it's been so fascinating that like, you know, you just try and then all of a sudden, like, you know, you look at their friends and like, well, here's this person who has the same name as her mom and the same name as her brother and the same name as her dad. So likelihood <laughs> is that this is the same person. Yeah. And then and I Googled her and found she had a website and I emailed her and then she plays a key figure into uh, one of the best stories that we're going to share in a little bit. So we're kind of saving two of the biggest things that we learned for the end. Um, but before we get there... You know, we spent 13 days total. Half was kind of related to all this research. What are some of the other things that were memorable from this trip? Um, well, one, there was very many memorable moments, honestly. Yeah, um, every day, special. I still remember every day we were there and what we did. And, you know, there's uh, even, you know, yeah, it was just, it, everything was so interesting and different. Um, and I would say that the most uh, inspiring day, if you will, was certainly the one we spent with Jan Olaf when he took us around uh, the whole Skuna area uh, in southern Sweden. But, you know, we the other thing I would say is, you know, we took our time picking where we were going to stay. And, um, you know, we used Airbnb all, except for two nights. Um, I'd never really used it before, honestly, but it worked out great. The first place we stayed in Stockholm was the basement of a house, and the guy turned out to be a chef who lived in New York and has his own cookbook, and they were really nice. It was close to the metro, which we took downtown, you know. So, um, and then when we got down to Malmo, we stayed in an old blacksmith's college cottage that was built, I think, in the 1700s, and they'd modernized it, and it was out in the middle of nowhere, um, but it was a cool little house to, you know, to hang out in for seven days. So, picking place that had a little pond behind it and all those things. And that was just, and it was very affordable. So that really helped make our trip too. But as far as things we did, um, you know, we were both in Stockholm area, which is um, central Sweden and on the Baltic sea and in the Haganas uh, Skuna area, which is on the North sea and Southern uh, Sweden coast of Denmark. And so it's really like we took two trips in a way, we were in Stockholm for about half of it, and we were down in by Malmo for about half of it. 
And uh, it really worked out well for us. We went to the archives. We found that the regional archives weren't as helpful um, for us. And so we ended up spending just like, you know, one place we spent two days and the other we didn't even go to. Um, but, you know, after getting there, then we went down into um, Stockholm on Saturday and took the metro and walked around by the palace and we saw the Nobel Museum. Um, but we also went to the church where Anna was baptized. And it was this octagon-shaped yellow church that's on this hillside, and it's just gorgeous. Um, and it's all, I mean, it's, you know, it's been around for 150 years or more. And so the doors were open. And it's Friday, or I think that was on Friday night. Yeah. Um, it's like 6.15 or 6.30, starting to get dark. And um, we walked in. And they were having a sing-along. There were probably 50 people there and a guy at the piano. And they were singing, a lot of songs were American songs, but they were singing them in Swedish. Um, I, you know, I would have joined in if they were singing them in English uh, just because I like to sing. But it was just cool to see people came there voluntarily. Just about 50 people were there. Um, and the, I'd say the church probably holds three or 400. So it was just kind of cool. They're all in the front. Uh, the guy on the piano was taking requests and uh, they were just being neighbors and so uh, yeah, it, it was, was it was just a fun experience. It was really cool just to walk part around, of, kind of part of the community for a second there. Yeah, and you know, um, it was nice. Uh, like the day we went to the Nobel Museum, I think it was on Saturday. You know, it's okay, but um, that's all it was was okay because there's just it'd have to be a huge place to have a lot of really cool stuff, and and so it wasn't set up that way. But we also then walked. I mean, we would probably walk four or five miles that day. And, you know, S Stockholm is 14 islands with water running through it everywhere. And I just I'd say my best memory that day was by one of the bridges where we stopped and took some pictures of ourselves and we just hung out and we were holding hands and just, you know, we were carefree. And that's, I think, what I enjoyed uh, more than anything. And we went to a nice place to eat. And so, um, yeah, it was just uh, just being in a different place and a different world, really. So. And then uh, once we left, we had to go down to Malmo and it was seven hours. So I tried to plan that so that we drove partway and stayed halfway between and um, then drove down the next day. And looking at hotels near this huge lake uh, near John Coping, um, there's an old mansion that used to be the owner of Husqvarna uh, in Husqvarna, Sweden, that someone bought and has converted into a like a sweet hotel, but it was I think it was one hundred twenty nine dollars. So it was more expensive than every place else we stayed, but it was still really reasonable, and it was gorgeous. It was you know built in the nineteen hundreds. Um, it looked like a castle, and uh, it turned out to be a really special place for us to stay. So it, I mean, um, I've never stayed in any place like that ever. It was like I, we had our own castle for the night. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, it was just there. amazingly appointed in both, uh, like, historic and modern touches at the same time. Like, it really felt like, you know, I, as I would imagine, if somebody, like, if I'm talking about Buckingham Palace or even the White House, places like that, they update them over time with slightly modern touches. But you have that deep history of all those who've lived there before, and that's really what it felt like. Yeah, we took a ton of pictures, and, and they basically... Uh, they were a young couple who'd bought it and uh, had a five-month-old. And so they lived in one portion of it, and then the rest of it was free reign, and there was hardly anybody there. And we were on the third floor, so we just had the whole place to ourselves. We you know, we got our laptops and sat in one room, and there was a pool room, I mean, billiards room. 
And it just, it was really cool. So, and I, I did forget to mention, you know, we're groundwater people, or I am, with Jennifer is too. Um, we worked in the groundwater section uh, at our scientific survey, and we help private well owners and, you know, all those kind of folks in small communities. Um, I found a groundwater museum uh, that was uh, in Uppsala, which is north of Sweden. And we went there Sunday before we left town. I forgot to mention that because... You know, it's like we got to go to a groundwater museum because I'd never even heard of one before. It was definitely a nerdy thing to do, but yeah, it was fun. Yeah. It was cute. It was. Well, it was nice. It's it was the water company in yeah. Uppsala who their old water plant. They'd made a museum and give tours so they could teach people about how wells work and where their water comes from. And it's really educational. And they had two college students who were civil engineers uh, telling everybody they really struggled to to tell us stuff in English. It was really just as fun. Um, but it was, you know, um, we did you know, uh, I won't say stupid, but crazy stuff like that too, that just were off the beaten path. Well, I think we learned, I'd mentioned this, oh God, this is on my crop last night that when we went to Savannah a couple years ago, we, we kind of found our stride as, as how we like to travel together. And it's, it's a mix of some planning and some intentional non-planning to see, you know, where the road takes us that day. And, yeah. and I think this, this trip had a lot of that element as well. Yeah, no, I agree. Then we start heading down to Malmo, though, and uh, when we got, and again, Svarn and stuff, and that's when, you know, you got the idea of building a story map. I don't know if you want to mention that or not. Yeah, so it was it was on this drive as we were transitioning from being in the Stockholm area to, to going south to transitioning from that bark side of the family to the Shalid side of the family. I'm like, there's so much information. You know, we just looked at all, Steve mentioned like eight apartments. We found all but one of them. Um, all these addresses, all these new resources. And I was just all swirling in my head. And I'm like, I know as soon as we start thinking about, you know, digging into the research on this other side of the family, I'm going to forget all this. And it wasn't, we had tons of photos and we had notes, but how are we going to find a way to put it together? And so, you know, we have several colleagues that use ArcGIS story maps to, to tell kind of visual stories about their research and, and how the public can better understand that. And I thought, I wonder if we could use this to document part of our trip and to be able to store this data in a one place to tell a story to not only so that we could understand it, so then we could share that with others to say, here's, here's what we learned and what we saw and what we did, but in a way that's kind of a nice little package. And so I was able to get through, I would say it's more than half, but it was unfinished. And it was at that point when kind of the world changed, coronavirus was declared a, declared a pandemic. The last time I logged in was March 11th. And so the, really the second half of our trip didn't get as much justice into that as I would like. And so I still need to finish it. No, but it does cover up like if as we're doing this chronologically, sort of. It does cover that part of the trip, and it's kind of a neat way to see it. And you get to see the pictures, too, and a little description. And it's actually a neat way. Uh, and I only brought it up. Um, I mean, you'd mentioned it to me the other night. But um, because it is a – it's a, in a way, it's scrapbooking uh, to me. Oh, for sure. 100%. So, yeah. Well, and it's, so. and it's also so readily shareable with yeah. our family members, whether that's, you know, just our immediate family or even as we – meet folks on Ancestry who are curious about this part of our family. We can share this. Like here's not only is here's the facts about when so-and-so moved or lived at a place, but here's the pictures of what those places look like. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, so. you know, you can add, you can add pictures to Ancestry, but it's not, 
connected to that information in the same way. You basically, it's very separate. And so this is a, a nice little additional resource to, to make those, draw those connections. And, and as you said, the same way scrapbooking does. Yeah. And so, you know, after, so after our night in Husqvarna, we went to the Husqvarna museum, which, you know, they make sewing machines and all motorcycles, motorcycles all kinds yeah. of stuff. And, and I thought, well, that's something kind of off the beaten path we could do before we drive down the rest of the way. But when we got out and started looking around, uh, there was this really cool trail that went up this uh, basically a cliff where there was a waterfall and rapids that ran down by the, the plant and they had built a trail up through it. So uh, we found a, a big billboard that explained all that. And um, we decided to go up and climb that. And, uh, you know, in the end, we probably walked a mile and we went up three or four hundred feet. Um, but that ended up being the coolest part of that day, because once you get up to the top, there's this huge tube where they were actually diverting part of the water from the river uh, through a, uh, to generate power. And so, um, you know, there were actually they engineered this. It looks like a huge, um, you know, those things you get in and it's a tube. Um, At a water, water park? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it was used to pull water, uh, gain speed down the straight slope. And it got to these generators where it pushed them through and it generated power for like 10,000 homes or something. It was crazy. Um, but the view from up there, you could see this giant lake in the whole town. We were, you know, uh, and it was actually a lot of, uh, we were pretty tired, I think, when we got done with that. But that was by far the best part. And, you know, once we were down in Malmo, things started to change because of COVID. But we'd made plans to uh, meet Jan Olaf on Wednesday, the 10th. Um, and he had the whole day planned for us. And that was, I mean, by far, I think we agree that was our best day there just because he showed us a lot of culture. You know, he took us to an inn for lunch that was built in the 1680s and it had the King seal and one of the beams that said 1696, you know, that meant uh, that the King was protecting that property. And uh, he took us to the lighthouse. It was up on the North coast. And, uh, well, and, even, and that restaurant yeah. was so amazing because it, it was, was just this, you know, very like authentic food, um, beautifully decorated. But I think our meals were like $10 each. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you and, pay more uh, at Applebee's. <laughs> yeah. And he made a reservation. Uh, you know, he, he did, he planned the entire day and took us to Bastad where they, it's a tennis uh, kind of a ritzy, it's like the Hamptons, you know, in Sweden and showed us, I mean, it was in the winter, so there was nothing going on, but, um, you know, it just, you know, it's where Bjorn Borg used to play and all that stuff. But, uh, and then in the afternoon, we met his brother and his wife, we went over there to have cake and coffee. And that's when, you know, totally by chance, um, Jennifer had met Annette, uh, who was a Shalene descendant. And she'd mentioned, cause she was born over there. Um, we should go see Pershog, which we had no idea even really what Pershog was other than it was a house. And uh, Jennifer mentioned that in our conversation and um, uh, Jan brother's wife, his sister-in-law said, oh, my daughter used to live by that uh, house. I know right where it's at. And so, you know, that was the aha moment of our trip, I think, uh, was seeing Pershog and um yeah, well, and this is it just all fell together within a matter of hours. Yeah. Um, we had, you know, one of the things on the agenda for that day was to go to a couple cemeteries in, in the Hoganess area. And I was hoping to see like something that had the name Shaleen on it. And 
you know, one of the things that we learned about Sweden is that they have a very interesting system of grave rental. So yeah. you own it for, you, you don't own it, you lease it for 25 years. And then if nobody pays up, they give the spot to somebody else. And I don't know exactly what happens to the remains, if they just pile them on or they relocate or what, but the name that's on that particular site may not reflect the entirety of who's buried there. Yeah, um, it's kind of you. You're leasing the name, the the stone, and the the the, the land on top of the ground. Um, and so we, we, I didn't see anything that said Shalid, and I'm like, this is my name that I grew up with. You know, growing up with a name that's impossible to pronounce for anybody in America, it, you know, it's like it's it becomes an important part of your identity, and that's why I wanted to go to Sweden and see something that said Shalid. Um, and so Annette had mentioned this house. Um, you know, it's spelled as, as like Pershog, but it's pronounced Pedershug. Um, and sorry, no, it's all, it's all good. <laughs> you know, I, I'm sure our listeners are not criticizing your <laughs> Swedish pronunciation of Jean Tropping or things like that. I've, um, came a little easier for me than you, I think. Um, we, you know, you mentioned we were having cake and coffee. We were having this like fika experience, very traditional. They made this amazing food for us, and I just casually mentioned it, like, "Hey, Annette said we should see this. Do you can you guys help me figure out where this is?" And they're like, "As you said, oh, you know, you know, my daughter lived by this place. Here, they found the address immediately. We brought it up on like Google Maps, and then I'm like, oh my gosh." There's this house, and it not only is just this address, it says Pears Hook on the house. And I'm like, it's yeah, pretty clear letters. when you're there. Yeah. And that was built in 1895. So that's pretty cool, I think. Well, and the fact that it, so it's Hook means hill. And so this means Pears Hill. And I'm like, well, if this is Pears Hill, at the time we thought this was just one of, of Pershaline's uh, daughters had lived there. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. This has to be his house, you know? And so that's, we were able to, to cross-reference all the records to show that the family moved there in 1895. Um, you know, he had his bakery there. And so we, we drove over there and we're, we're taking pictures. It was a, like it was a, it was kind of late in the evening, like five o'clock or something. It was after five. Yeah. yeah. And this guy comes out and, and I'm like, oh my gosh, he's, you know, you know, being an American, I'm like, oh, he wants us to go away. Why are you taking pictures of my house? But it wasn't like that at all. <laughs> No, he just asked what we were doing, and I, so I explained it to him and and said that, you know, Jennifer's a Shalene, and um, we were hoping to find more information out. And he's like, oh, well, you know, I bought this from these two ladies who now they built a smaller house behind this one on, on the property, and they call it, you know, Purse Hoog 2. And uh, they're both in their 70s, and he said they know a lot about the history of this house. So he goes, do you want to meet them? And so all of a sudden these three, you know, two Americans and another Swede are uh, walking back through this driveway to this other house and knocking on these people's door. And, and uh, he told us what we were doing and they were so welcoming and kind. And, um, you know, Jennifer was telling them I was just hoping to see something that said Shalene and, and she goes, Oh, you come here with me. Let me show you this. And so we walked around to the house uh, on the very back corner. There was a brick where Per Shalene had etched his name into it. Um, and it was, you know, I, I thought Jennifer was going to start bawling. Oh, I'm um, going to now just thinking yeah, about that. It was, uh, it was just, it, you talk about surreal. It's like, wow. You know? And so then they told us the whole story. Um, they knew, um, per Shaleen's granddaughter, uh, personally, um, uh, 20 years ago. Um, and we could not find if she was, they didn't, weren't sure if she was still alive or not. And we couldn't find any information while we were there. 
Um, but the uh, Purs Hill part of the story was um, there was a hill. And that was the only house in the area for a long time. But then some of the land got sold and they started developing. And where the hill was, was a small hill. In the 70s, they discovered a Viking burial ground. And so they had a scrapbook album with all these newspaper clippings from the 70s and pictures of the house the way it used to look inside and um, all just in a, a normal scrapbook where you're, you know, it's got the plastic cover and you put stuff underneath it and you seal it sort of. And so... Um, we talked to them for several hours and they're like, do you want to take this with you? <laughs> and we're, I was like, I said, no way am I taking this? And they're like, oh no, just bring it back. You know, no problem. And, and so we agreed to do that. And uh, so we took it back to our cottage and we took pictures of every page. And um, then we were supposed to return it the next day. And that next day was the morning that um, we were trying to get out of Dodge because uh, we'd heard that we have to get back that day or else. We didn't have a choice. Like it was going to go back. <laughs> well, so I, I'd already told her, I said, if we really have to try to get to Stockholm, you know, we can get there in six or seven hours. Um, we'll just go by um, where Jan Olaf lives and ask him if he'll take it back. He was with us. He was excited as we were that we found all this information. And later I talked to him and he said, oh yeah, I would have taken it back for you. I knew he would. Um, but in the end, we couldn't get through to anybody and we weren't leaving. So I said, we're going to make our appointment with these two ladies um, because we were going to have coffee and cake with them. And they, you know, they were very nice to us. And so so we we did. We went back to their house. We sat down and had, uh, you know, a, a snack with them. And I actually asked them if they mind if I recorded this. So I recorded the entire conversation on my phone because they had all these stories about, you know, who Persheline was and how generous he was to the community and and the daughter and all this stuff. And we still haven't gone through all of it, um, to be honest. It's just, uh, you know, it's, it's just, we were spent uh, by the time we got back and well, uh, it was set like, it aside. Even just that moment was just, it's just so emotionally intense. And it was like, I almost, I, you know, I've of course bonded with these ladies since we've returned as well. And I, they, they feel like family now because they treasured this house so much. They went to like, you know, their, you know, city council to make sure it was declared in a historic place so that it couldn't, the exterior could not be changed. And so like, I feel like they are custodians of my family's home. No doubt. Yeah. So, but the, you know, the scrapbook's got a lot of cool stuff in it and we still haven't translated all the newspaper clippings either, but um, it's, you know, it's, it's all the things they knew because they knew the granddaughter and she had lived there. And just even that the bakery was in the basement and, because uh, we knew he was a baker, but you know, when you look at the house, you'd never think there was a bakery there. Um, and also about all the people he took in. So after we heard all those stories, it's like, well, it makes sense. He took Carl in um, because that's what he did even for strangers. And I think the coolest story they told was there was a guy who worked and he had, he clearly uh, was well to do um, because he owned a lot of that land in the area, which eventually got sold off. But um, at one time, he owned all the land around there. And one of the people that uh, had helped him build like his bakery in the basement and um, did some other work for him, um, didn't have enough money to buy a property and build a house. So and he had a family like with three kids or something. And they said he sold it to him for, you know, the equivalent of a dollar. He sold them a piece of land so they could build a house. And so, you know, that you can't there's we've never known that stuff. It's all personal information that was handed down verbally 
And if we would have met those ladies, we would have never found that stuff. So, you know, if if we wouldn't have found um, Annette, she wouldn't have told yeah, us about through my Marshawn. Facebook sleuthing. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then um, when we went to have, we would probably never found it on our own. But it turned out uh, Yonala's sister-in-law knew where it was. And then we're outside their house taking pictures. And the guy who'd bought it five years ago uh, came outside to see what we were doing. You know, if he wouldn't have been home or whatever, we'd have never met those ladies either. So it all, and I said, some of it's just blind luck. Some of it was definitely blind luck. And it led to so much detail about Jennifer's family that we would have never known and would have been lost. And well, so we wouldn't uh, have this, you know, print in the living room of P. Shaleen on this, you know, brick wall, you know, hogging us on it. And it just, it's just such a treasure. I even make, made a canvas for my parents as well, because it's just like, you know, my dad is Paul Shaleen. So he's P. Shaleen too. And he's like, he's the last P. Shaleen. Yeah. Um, so is. it's just, yeah. it's just such a treasure. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was very surreal again I mean, so surreal that was like, is a good word here so that was the big day and then we were kind of late to dinner i feel i feel so bad for yon olaf's wife karina she had <laughs> you know planned this so, such a nice dinner for us that we were like two hours late for yeah uh, but fortunately it was refrigerated and we had this thing that's um i kind of need to look at what it's called it's a but meat cake it translates that's, to meat cake and that's really yeah. what it is it's like it, it's san- no it's sandwich cake ah sandwich cake um and it's, it was really interesting. It's amazing. A smorgasbarda. Oh, that's right. Yes. And it, it's like, think of it like a really like yummy mayonnaise ham sandwich, uh, pot, you know, triple decker with vegetables and, and fruit. In a it was, nine by was, 13 pan. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> I, I would say that's probably one of the, my favorite things that I know you're not as a mayonnaise fan as I am, but that was definitely one of the, my favorite things that we ate there. Well, and I'm not a mayonnaise fan, but it actually was pretty good. I, you know, at first I was worried um, when I realized it was, there was a lot of mayonnaise there, but it actually was really, it was really good. So, so yeah. And you got to see your name. Yeah. So, and it was just, uh, just that I was content after that, even though that was the start of a lot of anxiety. We kept going back to that. Like, I felt like I got what I came for, even if though, you know, we didn't see, couldn't find the gravestones and, that there were lots of challenges there and then we didn't get to go to Denmark and, but I felt like I, I had that level of satisfaction that I needed from the trip. Yeah. Um, and then we had to readjust because like Saturday we were going to go to to Denmark and just spend the day around Copenhagen or go out. Actually, we decided we were going to go out in the country. We found, I found some stuff to do touristy stuff, but then they closed the border. So yeah. um, we got back late and we, then we still, started looking for things to do in the area. And that's where we found that, you know, uh, Ail Stenar, which was really cool um, set of stones, big, you know, three by three by nine tall, probably uh, and a hole. They, they were shaped like a ship. And somehow you could tell what time of day it was. And it was up on this big cliff over the ocean. And um, we went to an old farm that was still being ran. Like it was the 1850s, I think. Um, and I think, you know, something simple, but we spent a couple hours, we were trying to find some rocks to bring back on this. It was a stony coast and we just walked along the beach and we're trying to find some rocks to bring back for Emily, a couple, and actually found a really cool piece of driftwood, a really tiny one that that we brought back. And it was just nice just because there's people fishing and it was relaxing. So. Well, and Emily um, had asked me to send her a picture of the 
Baltic Sea when we finally got to got to see it. And so that was a really cool day as well. Sure. Well, that's right. Yeah. And that's, you know, we were down there because we um we were, we were looking, looking for, for the Carl's house family. where mm-hmm. Carl's father, his birth father, Dahlst- the Dahlstrom, had grown up. Um, and so we kind of started doing more Dahlstrom exploring. And I found that there was this, you know, fishing town. And this lady had actually written a little, um, like a history of this fishing town. She lives had grown lived, grown up there herself. This and is so, a town of 120 people. Yeah, I emailed her right. just to see like, Hey, this. Do you have any information about this? And she emailed me back, and she actually went to the house herself and took a picture of it and said, "Oh, this is the oldest house in town. Here's where it is." And so we were able to drive by and see this house, and we would have never been able to find it otherwise. And no you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit shy, definitely an introvert, but this experience told me you have to be willing to talk to people to see what they know, and uh, it kind of expect generosity because they really are just such a amazing group of people that want to help you. <laughs> Everyone yeah. just seems so excited that we were interested, I guess. Oh yeah. And people were, they're just really friendly. They're just, it's a, they're the way they view the world is, uh, the, it, yeah, it's a great place. Um, I could see myself even living there someday. So it was pretty cool. Well, I think one other place that I thought was really fun to see was, and this was one of the, as soon as we got down to to the Melma area, we went to this church where Carl was baptized and also where his birth parents, the Dahlstroms, had been married. And that just felt really special because, you know, he was, he was, you know, uh, what, 20 some years old, maybe 18, 20 when he came to the U.S. So he didn't have much of his life in Sweden. But here was this church where, you know, he his family had raised him. Yeah. Well, and we were after we went to the fishing village that uh, we went to another church and found some headstones. Um, and that's where we that's when the thing came up about. The moms. I oh, think. okay. Yeah. So we, right. Steve always teases me that I say things that like, oh, I could never blah, blah, blah. And then he proves me wrong. Like I could said, I could never <laughs> move to the Midwest. And he called my bluff. Um, and then I made this comment of like, you know, I, I'm just really interested in the name lineage, like the male side, because I want to like find out where the Shalines and the Dahlstroms came from. And he's like, well, you're kind of missing half of the blood picture if you do that. And so one night we were up so late, we were in our little cottage and he was doing the searching and he had this amazing revelation. Yeah. Well, it turns out that, um, we had, you know, we didn't know why Carl went to live with the Shalines because there was no other connection, but, um, I started tracing the mom side back because, you know, we both work on our ancestry site and the, the, the male side has a lot more stuff than some of the, uh, the wife sides do. And so I started filling those sides in, um, and it turns out that Pershaline and Carl's dad, who was a Dahlstrom, were first cousins because their moms were sisters. And so, you know, if we wouldn't have, and that was while we were there, we, we so we didn't know. And it's like, well, now that makes a lot more sense, you know, even if it still is that, you know, Pershaline only had daughters, um, and and the uh, Dahlstroms had a number of boys. Um, they were cousins, so they wanted to teach him something, a trade. And so they probably did really know each other beforehand, obviously. And um, that's one of the reasons why they probably stayed in touch when they came to the States. And 
because they're really all part of the same family. Um, and so, um, we didn't know that until like the Thursday night before we left. Yeah. That was uh, one of the very last discoveries. And, you know, I had seen the Shaleen name, but I'm like, oh, I'm not, I'm not really a Shaleen. And then when we have this data and I'm like, yeah. I'm actually a Shaleen. <laughs> and that also is one, you know, I said we had two trees in ancestry, one for the Shaleens and one for the Dahlstroms. Well, now we had a connection and so we can put it all in one tree. And not keep separate ones because there's, you know, it doesn't really work when you have, because uh, there's one common person in both, and that's Carl Schleen uh, and Carl Dahlstrom. And so um, it's, we just, we, yeah, we learned so much, I guess. Uh, it, uh, you just never know. One is just to say very much that like snowball or cascade is like one fact leads to another and then kind of the whole picture becomes clear. And I don't think we would have ever gotten to these places on our own without physically being there and having these conversations with people. And it just, it made all the difference. Well, and being willing to take a chance, you know, like when you found Annette, um, she was the second Annette that we reached out to. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, the first Annette lived in Malmo and worked at a hospital. And um, we'd looked, we thought we, we were convinced that she was the right person. So we emailed her, we found her email and um, nope. Um, but she was nice enough to respond and say, I'm not related to these, this particular part of the family. Uh, so, because, I mean, you know, it's several generations, so no one uh, had the Shalene name anymore because Carl was actually the only male. Um, and that may be why he chose to take the name Shalene when he came here. I don't know. But, uh, you know, we can speculate all we want. We'll never know. But uh, anyway, um, but we were willing to take those chances. And because of that, um, you know, just like, I jumped on the Swedish archives and in the forum and started posting stuff. And like I said, some people were really nice to me because they could have been, you could find this on your own if you just did a little more digging. Um, but I didn't know some of the things I didn't know at the time. And uh, now I could find that stuff easily. So yeah, it, uh, you have to be willing to put yourself out there, I guess was my point there. So I'd like to kind of wrap it up with some of our final tips and lessons learned from this experience. So the first one that I came up with is uh, when you are booking an Airbnb to make sure they have good internet. If you're trying to, if you're going to do this type of experience and you know you're going to be doing a lot of research, um, the place that we were staying outside of, of Malma, they had like a, like a fixed amount of bandwidth. And so I installed like a bandwidth tracker on my laptop to make sure we weren't using too much. We probably used a little more than we should have, but it, the whole pandemic thing, and I think the, ref the refrigerator had broke, and so we felt like it was okay. But well, yeah. we might have chosen a different place that if we we knew that if we were knew how much internet we were going to be using, and to make sure that was okay with the the host uh, that we were staying with. Well, and to be fair to them, yeah. uh, two things: one, um, the fridge didn't break; they had someone come in and clean it on the, the Sunday before we got there Monday. And whatever they, whoever was cleaning it, pushed a button and turned it off. Oh, yes. So yes, we yes. got there, there was water on the floor and a lot of this, and they, they use it as a summer house. So they had frozen meat in there and stuff and it thawed. So I contacted them and, and they were panicked too because they ended up losing a lot of stuff, I imagine. Um, but as far as the internet goes, it said right in the notes, you know, we only have this much internet. But if you, if you really read through all the literature that was in there, a uh, little binder they gave us or that was on the table. You, if we'd have known it, we could have reached out in advance and told them we want more bandwidth and we might've had to pay, you know, 20 or $40 total for the seven days we were there. 
uh, and we could have had more bandwidth, but we just didn't realize that until we were halfway through. Yeah. So, but it's still a good point is, you know, if you're going to use your computer, make sure their internet has enough capacity and because we had some limited times, so I'd say so. You know, and related to that, we didn't we didn't put this in the notes, but we had paid to have these the special unlimited internet uh, unlimited data plans on our phones, and oh, that was yeah. probably one of our biggest expenses of the trip. But it was well worth it because we were doing so much research all the time. You know, like doing live mapping and really trying to 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 connect the dots. And I don't think we could have done what we did without it. No, and 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 to have both our phones in use the whole time, um, I figured out it was cheaper to do the daily plan than the overall plan because you could still get throttled on the overall plan. Um, and so it ended up costing us for you know thirteen or fourteen days we were over there, a little over three hundred dollars for our phones. But again, in the end, um, it was frustrating at the, at first, but it, by the time we got into it more and realized how much, how valuable it was. Um, it was just an expense we had to pay. So. Well, we did a lot of eating pretty simple cheese and cracker dinners and sure. you know, ham, deli ham for dinner too. Because of, because of COVID, we didn't eat out as much as we maybe would have otherwise. Uh, and so we did a lot of cooking at home. I think that kind of offset some of the expenses too. Yeah, well, and it was nice to you know to cook on an old stove like that. Um, I like cooking breakfast, so it was yeah, it was fun. Yeah. So, okay, what's the next one? Um, so, uh, don't have high ex- expectations for cemeteries. Um, they're generally disappointing in what you find, and that goes for here and there. Um, obviously, they have a different culture over there because most of the cemeteries don't have stones. Um, unless it's really old and at a church, but like the Hogana Cemetery was just these plots with two bushes, and that was the uh, the Shalene plot. We knew the people were supposed to be buried there, but we just took a picture of two bushes. Um, in some cases, there was a plot number, but there was no nothing, nothing to mark it. And so, for some of our relatives that we found, but even over here, you know, some of the when the um, one of the Chicago cemeteries we went to. Um, they told us what section it was supposed to be in. They showed us on a map and we get out there and they're all flat. Um, it is completely grown over. Oh, completely grown over. Like not and even just like, like grown a, over, like they were buried. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a field of grass Yeah, and there should have been uh, a flat, maybe six by 12 stone every eight or 10 feet uh, in rows. And there was none of that. And so there was no, so we, some of her, um, relatives will never get to see their headstone but that's you know it depends because uh one of the other cemeteries in chicago we got there too late and they were closed i emailed them and said your new website said five we got there at 4 30 and she's like well and this is before we ever went to sweden um she felt bad and she went out and took pictures of the gravestones two of them there uh, and emailed them to me and which was really nice of her. So, you know, it, it just depends too uh, on, uh, I think the quality of the caretakers for the cemeteries that you would go to as well. So. Yeah. It's just like, I think I, if at the outset, that's one of the first things that you think about. It was even one of my first thoughts when I knew we were going, but I, I learned pretty quickly that I needed to lower my expectations of what, what I was actually going to get from that. And it's, you know, it's, it's a happy accident when you are able to find something, but it's, not always possible. Yeah, if it's more than 100 years old, you're probably going to be lucky to find anything. Yeah. Yeah. So. so one of the things that I thought was 
uh, very well timed was going in the off season because you know the, it was very it was springtime weather. It did rain a little bit, but it was never super cold. Um, it was very pleasant most of the time. Uh, there were n- no crowds really anywhere. I didn't feel any pressure to do the touristy things because even there were so many things that weren't even open yet for the season. Um, like we, there were so there's so many castles there, but almost all of them were closed uh, until you know probably April May. Um, and we definitely want to go back in the summer, but for this type of trip going that time of the year, I seemed perfect. And see, this is the introvert versus the extrovert. Um, because I was disappointed that so many things were closed, like, uh, going back up, uh, we were trying to find things to do the last couple of days because we couldn't do what we planned. There was a, a moose ranch and mm-hmm. we want to go back and take Emily because I mean, it's, you know, there's 500 moose there and, uh, it'd be really cool, but that was closed. And, um, oh, and the, the, the vodka place too. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember what kind of vodka what is it, it is. The... Um, anyway, but it was closed. We went up there and you know, it's cause it's the off season. Plus it was fairly chilly. Um, the day we walked around, uh, that state park, um, Absolute. we were in our coats, absolute vodka. That's right. Yeah. And, um, also, you know, they had a pond there. And so I eventually asked the host if they had any fishing tackle because I love to fish. And they had a little shed. And like, yeah, there's a brand new pole in there. So a couple mornings I went out and got that out. I couldn't get anything to bite. But it was 42 degrees both days. And I'm sure the water was close to that. So that's probably why. Um, yeah. So um, we certainly do want to go back in the summer. If we For sure. And take Emily there. and just yeah. show her all the places. And it's just, yeah, you mentioned that you would consider living there. I would too. Like it was just, it was so amazing. Uh, just, just a special place. Yeah. Um, two final tips here. One. Um, so I had an interesting experience. We had an interesting experience. We had an interesting experience with Jan Olaf. Apparently he has a very distinctive Skona dialect and he, the way he pronounces things. Um, cause he kept trying to tell me that Shaleen is not how you pronounce it. And I'm sure I'm not saying it perfect, but he said it was Huelin. And then we asked, um, Marianne and Christine, these lovely ladies who live in, uh, Pershug too. And they're like, that's not how you say it. <laughs> it Shaleen is pretty darn close. And so they're like, he has a special dialect that's that's you know very uh traditional for that area and they had lived you know up near stockholm and maybe had a more uh i guess a universal swedish dialect and they're like chulin is fine and that's how the name had pronounced it so i was worried that my whole life had been mispronouncing my name and i told my parents and it turns out i was wrong or at least semi-wrong <laughs> and i'd say uh the last thing is um you can't take too many pictures so, but, and you really should try to take too many pictures. We ended up with over a thousand or 1100 pictures, I think. And, you know, when that's a lot to go through, but I took two thirds of those and, uh, you know, I have different tastes in pictures than Jennifer does. And so it really works out well. It complements each other. And, uh, so she's used some of both and some of the things we're doing and, but we've always got them all. If we want to go back and look at them, um, it's just, yeah. And well, I think the fact that we both take pictures meant that we were both in pictures. Yeah, and that's that's very true. Because, uh, and we did. Uh, there certainly were selfies. We were both in it as well. And and we even, you know, Jan Olaf took some pictures of us, and we handed. I think a couple times, maybe handed the camera off. Probably less so because of virus concerns than we would have normally, uh, and just overall lack of proximity to people in general because we were very much alone a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, but 
I, I definitely appreciate that we are both in the pictures a lot because of that. Sure. Well, Steve, this has been so amazing. Thank you for spending time with me um, outside of your, your normal spending time with me. And everyone out there, please remember that you have permission to scrapbook your way.